Good morning, Rogers Park. Let me try that again. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Phil Adams. I have the privilege of serving as pastor in West Rogers Park and on the teaching team here in South Rogers Park. Uh, usually when we start a message, um, we start with a kind of hook, a story that is in your life, so it kind of pulls you into uh, what's going to happen in the, in the message. I don't have a story today. We're just going to go straight into the text this morning. If you've got a Bible, please open to Romans chapter 8. Over the next uh, four weeks, we're going to be sitting in this, uh, this chapter, Romans chapter 8, um, sometimes called one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, uh, because it is, brings such a, such a sweeping and deep sense of clarity and hope and understanding to the, to the Christian life. So please turn to Romans chapter 8. If you've got one of the house Bibles, you came in and you picked one up. Uh, it'll be on page 550. Uh, if you, you would like that Bible, please take that Bible with you. It's our gift to you. Um, but we'll read in a few moments from Romans chapter 8. A few weeks ago, uh, we looked at, at Romans chapter 6. If you remember, we, we thought about how prior to, to knowing Christ, no matter how hard we, we tried, our lives were stuck in a, in a cycle of sin. Even efforts for uh, good were not efforts for God's glory. No, no traction was possible and it left us uh, unable to, to, to get into a relationship with God. Um, this was the human condition that we all were born into. But when we give our lives to Christ, the, 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 the chains of sin are broken. We are set free from the reign of sin in our lives. Uh, we're given a new life with new abilities uh, because Jesus paid the price for our freedom, so we now in Christ for the first time have the ability to say, to really truly say no to sin in our life, say yes to righteousness. Sin no longer determines our future, leading us to eternal death, but God's grace, his love, his forgiveness determines our future, leading us to eternal life. And if you can remember, I encouraged us to, to go, to go, to go, to run towards godliness, run towards holiness. Don't turn back towards sin in your life. Sin wants nothing good for you. Then the following week, Jimmy talked more about this new life in Christ. In chapter 7, verse 6, it says, Having died to that which held us captive, we now serve in the new way of the Spirit. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today, serving, living in this new way of the Spirit. But last week, we looked at the latter half of chapter 7. In a sense, it gears us up for chapter 8. But we went from this positive, hopeful beauty of, of freedom from sin, no longer being our master, a new life in, in, in Christ, sin no longer determining our, our future. And then we're taken at the, at the end of chapter 7 into one of the, the darkest moments in the life of a believer. What we read in, in Romans chapter 7, 13 to 25, is, is Paul acting out an expression of, of honesty. What we feel to be true. And so Romans chapter 7, 13 to, to 25 shouldn't be read simply as a lesson on correct theo theological thinking, but a glimpse into real theological experience. Paul writes, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I just don't think I have the ability to carry it out. I want to do the right thing. God, I do. I leave church every Sunday ready to go, but then before I know it, I don't know if it's in me. 
Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. I don't even do what I want to do, but keep doing the very things I hate. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I want, I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. I don't want to scream at my kids anymore. God, I want to woo them with your grace and your love and your kindness, but I keep snapping at them. I don't want to keep perverting my mind, but I feel like a slave and I want to be free. I look to Jesus associating with the poor and sitting with sinners, but why do I live in this bubble of wealth, forgetting the greatest sinner in the room is me? I want to go. I want to run. I want to discover holiness and godliness. I want to be like Christ. But verse 23 of chapter 7, but I see in my members, that is, in my eyes, in my heart, in my very being, there is a law, or we could say there is a par There is an influence waging war against my mind, taking me captive to the power of sin that dwells, lives in me. Paul's saying, I feel sin in my bones. Verse 24, chapter 7, wretched man that I am. And then he asks this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's interesting that that Paul makes a connection between spiritual health with his physical health. And he he knows that his physical health is only going to go in one direction. Death is coming. It's as if he's looking at his aging hands and his graying hair, his weakening knees, his dying body, and thinking, wondering, If, as my body is going, is also my soul. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What we find in chapter 7 is a glimpse into real theological experience, real struggle, real feelings and fears. But when we get to chapter 8, we get the correct thinking to combat the real experience in chapter 7. We get the correct thinking which we need to drill into our minds and to cling to throughout the struggles and the trials of our lives. So let's read. Chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit of life is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray before we come to God's word. God, we come before you this morning knowing, acknowledging, God, our our desperate need of you. God, we need your power. God, we need your spirit. God, would you open our eyes this morning to a little greater glimpse of your majesty and your glory and your love for us, God. May our eyes be lifted up from whatever is distracting us from being wholly devoted to you in our lives, God. And may this morning we see you and run to you and for you, knowing, God, that by your spirit within us, dwelling in in us, God, you empower us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul opens Romans 1 with these words, therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is now reaching the very peak of the gospel message, which he's been leading us towards throughout the book of Romans. And now the peak of the gospel message is the foundation for which we need to live the Christian life. Because if we do not get this, the the weight of every wretched sin in our lives will crush us. The word condemnation is, is, is a legal word. It means to have received the verdict and to have been declared guilty. And so to live with condemnation is to live with the expectation of punishment. It is to live with judgment hovering over your life. It's to live with a, a lingering sense of shame waiting to receive what's coming your way. It's an internal weight to carry. It's an internal sense of shame that eats away at our joy and our peace. And in particular, Paul is is referencing condemnation from God. He's he's referring to the, the guilt that we have stored up in our rebellion and rejection of God, which was storing up for us wrath, We were living under condemnation, waiting, expectant of punishment. And yet Paul is now saying, therefore, now this condemnation, this internal weight of expectant punishment is gone, gone, gone. When Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he doesn't mean just for this precise moment, but who knows about tomorrow. No, this is what is so incredible and so freeing in the gospel. Now no condemnation means from now until forever. From the moment we accept Christ for eternity. Condemnation does not even exist in the life of the believer and never will. Because all of God's condemnation that should leave us expectant of punishment has been spent. Verse 3 of chapter 8, speaking of God and sending his own son, that is Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Jesus came and represented us on the cross in flesh like ours. And God condemned sin in Christ's flesh God condemned our sin, punished our sin in his flesh. Jesus took our place and he gave us his. And so hear this, all 
of God's condemning wrath, all of his opposition to us in our sin has been dealt with, not only dealt with, but replaced with almighty love, almighty kindness, almighty devotion, almighty divine assistance. And it does not depend on the day. It's not as though some days he is against us with wrath and those days are bad days. While other days he is for us with love and those days are good days. That is emphatically not the case. In Christ Jesus, God is always for you, loving you, committed to you. Always, always, always. And your sins of yesterday, sins of today, sins of tomorrow, it says in Psalm 103, have been removed as far as the east is from the west. As far as God is concerned, our sins are no longer in existence. That's what Paul means when he says you've been set free from sin. Before God, your sin no longer holds any association with your identity. When you stand before God, your sins do not. They are gone. Before God, you are free from sin's shame. Before God, you are free from sin's condemnation. Before God, you are free from the expectant weight and worry of future or present punishment. And all of God's posture towards you is love, love, love. Roger's part, heartwarming delight and affection, fatherly love. God loves you. He loves us as a local church. He, he loves us as individual members of it. If the, the church is anything in the world, we are a people who are loved. Oh, may America in this, this coming year see the church as a people secure and resting and hopeful in the love of a sovereign God. Every second, God's heart towards you is love. And that is never, ever, ever going to change. And it's his love that compels us to holiness. Why am I clinging to this stupid stuff when God loves me? Why am I bitter about that when God loves me? Why am I jealous of him when God loves me? Why do I need that when God loves me? How can't I tell the world that God loves me? And when, if you are here and you are ill or you are sick and you're in physical pain, there is no condemnation. Your sickness is not punishment. God's heart towards you is love. If you're fighting for your marriage or your job, he casts no shame. His heart towards you is love. When your children don't love you, how do you keep going? You know he loves you. Oh, Rogers Park, if we could believe this. If we could know that in all of our stumbling and our bumbling through life from morning to lunch till night, if we could know God's love for us deep in our souls, that he is for us, that he is for us, that he is for us, that he's fighting for us. Oh, what freedom. Oh, what would become of our lives? Joy, 
boldness, fearlessness, sacrifice, patience, peace, rest. The foundational key to living the Christian life is to be so aware of and so satisfied in the love of God that every moment is an overwhelmed response of worship, rest, and joy. The foundational key to living the Christian life is to be so aware of and so satisfied in the love of God that every moment is an overwhelmed response of worship, rest, and joy. If we could only be made aware. If we could only be reminded. In those dark nights of the soul, those dark nights in our wretched souls, if we could only know his love. Often we uh, come to the Holy Spirit and we treat the Holy Spirit like a kind of the quiet introvert of the family. We know he's in the house, but we're really not sure what he's doing. (laughs) Romans 8 is one of the most key passages in the Bible that grows us in our understanding of the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives. The first question we usually ask or is often, who? Who is this Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that, the simple answer to that is that the Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling, but a, a person. The Holy Spirit is a, is a person as much as Jesus is a person, as much as God the Father is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit speaks and sends. The Holy Spirit effectually opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. He opens. The Holy Spirit chooses. He teaches. He gives. He can be lied to and tested. He can be resisted. He can be grieved. So the Godhead, that is God, as in the Trinity, is made up of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I know that there is a little fear because we we think of you just said the 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 trinity and that's a buzzword for not super relevant i like the love (laughs) thank you for that the thing with the the trinity is that the trinity is not a problem to be avoided it's not a problem to be avoided I think for, for a long time, and even in my own walk with the Lord, I, I, I thought that this, this, there was this, this mystery in the Trinity, and I thought that was good, and I knew I needed a big God. If I was going to worship God, he needed to be bigger than my comprehension. So when I would think about the Trinity, I would think, okay, yes, there is a, there is a, a mystery here, and, and, and that reminds me that God is a bigger than me. And yet there is meaning in the mystery, There is incredible life-giving joy and immediate relevance in who God is and how God is three in one. One of the most beautiful stories in the Bible that helps us just just a glimpse at the Trinity and the beauty of the Trinity is in Matthew uh, chapter 3 when Jesus is, he's about 30 years old and he's beginning to teach and he's journeying towards the cross and the crucifixion and he goes to his cousin John 
And John is, is baptizing people in the River Jordan. John is dunking people under the water, pulling them back up out of the water as a way of signifying repentance in their lives. Even before, before Christ died and rose again, people were, were being baptized by John as they wanted to signify a new life. They were seeking God and they decided, I, I, I need to make a statement that says I, I'm striving after God more, more holy in my life. I wanted to repent of my past sins and, and move forward closer to God. So John was baptizing people. And Jesus goes to John and he asks to be baptized. And initially, cousin John says, say, what? No, you should, you should be baptizing me. Why do you want to be baptized after all you have nothing, Jesus, to repent of? And Jesus responds, John, this is in Matthew 3, he says, John, it is fitting that I should be baptized. John, it just makes sense that I would be baptized. And what Jesus was saying is that I'm here to fulfill the righteousness necessary for mankind to stand before God. I will be giving them my righteousness which I fulfill in their place, so it is fitting that I should do what mankind should be doing. Jesus, in a sense, is storing up righteousness to one day clothe us in. So John goes ahead and he puts Jesus under the water and pulls him out, and then we read this. Immediately Jesus comes up out of the water, and behold, the heavens open up to him, and the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so we get this, this freeze-frame moment in the book of Matthew with Jesus standing in the river Jordan with crowds around him watching at the banks. And then we have God the Father who in Genesis 1 speaks creation into being. He is now speaking from the sky, This is my beloved Son, my loved Son, who I am well pleased. And what I want you to really see this morning is that God the Father declares his love for Jesus as the Spirit comes down as a dove and rests on Jesus. And this moment, this moment in history is a glimpse of what has been happening for eternity past. God is one in essence, but three in distinct persons who have been relating to each other in perfect unity, love, embrace, acceptance, which we now are included and embraced into. One reason that the Trinity is relevant to our faith and our eternal hope is that it shows us that God has a track record of commitment. God the Father has never walked away from His Son. The Holy Spirit has never been left out or made to feel lesser. The Trinity is a picture of the love that we crave and that we are now welcomed into through Christ. And what is really key today is the role the Holy Spirit plays in this perfect, eternal embrace. The Holy Spirit is doing two things in descending as a dove on Christ in the River Jordan. There's maybe a slide will come up. The first thing, the Holy Spirit, as it descends as a dove on Christ, the Holy Spirit is effectually causing Jesus to experience the love of God. Jesus can hear God's words of love, but he feels God's pleasure resting on him through the, the Spirit descending as a dove. 
Second thing, the Holy Spirit is elevating Jesus, glorifying Jesus. As all the people watch on from the sides of the river, the dove guides their eyes to know exactly who God the Father is talking to. The dove is saying, look here. Everyone look here. Look to Jesus. And so this is, this is so good what the Holy Spirit did on that day, in that moment, in the River Jordan, is what the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is now doing in and for every believer. As we too are now the beloved sons and daughters of God. Romans 5 verse 5 says God's love, God's love has been poured, has descended into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Just as Jesus experienced and felt God's love through the presence of the dove, we too experience the love of God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And secondly, just as the Holy Spirit drew the crowd's eyes to Jesus, Jesus then went on later and he said to his disciples in John 15, when the counselor comes, that is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Just as the Holy Spirit pointed the, the crowds to Christ in the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit indwelling within believers will stir our hearts and our minds to look to Christ. And so, how does this all fit into Paul's argument in, in Romans chapter 8? Paul knows that we are one day going to notice, really notice, our aging hands, our graying hair, our weakening knees. He knows that we are going to look at physical decline in our lives and the lives in the lives of those that we love. He knows people are going to die too young. He knows we are going to have days doubting our worth he knows we are going to have days feeling wretched and alone and rejected. And Paul wants us. And Paul wants us and the church in Rome to know what to do and what to remember on those days. Within a handful of years after Paul's letter to the house churches in Rome a few years later after it arrived to them and was read by them. A few years after Romans 8 was read by them, soon there was to come in quick concession a flood and then a drought and then an earthquake and, and Roman society didn't know what to do with this and they, they, they thought, why are the gods shaking us and flooding us? And then they noticed that these Christians were there and these Christians weren't honoring their gods. They weren't giving sacrifices and incense to Roman gods. And so within a handful of years of this letter arriving in Rome, Christians, like a, one of the accounts that is still widely dispersed in history, is about a girl called Perpetua, a 22-year-old woman from North Africa. She refused to deny Christ, so she was fed to animals in the Roman games. A few years after Romans 8 arrived in the hands of the church, house churches in Rome, persecution was to strike in Rome in the house churches and the Christians. 
And God got Paul to write Romans 8 to get them ready. So the Christians in Rome would know what to do and remember what to do when those days would come. So that even as no dove descended from the sky, they needed to know a dove was resting in their hearts. Coming out of Romans 7, Paul wants his readers to become skilled in their ability to assure themselves of God's love. Coming out of Romans 7, Paul wants his readers to become skilled in their ability to assure themselves of God's love. And so he starts by making the declaration they need to remember. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before God, you are free from sin's shame. Before God, you are free from sin's condemnation. Before God, you are free from the expect and wait and worry of future or present punishment. And all of God's posture towards you is love from today until forever. And then he says, because or for, because as in this is how you'll know. And then he summarizes the gospel. This is good. Verse 2 of chapter 8. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Meaning through the power of the Holy Spirit you have been set free from the power of shame. Free from future punishment of sin and eternal death. Yes, this is good. But how do I know? How do I know? Then verse 3, Paul continues to summarize the gospel. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Meaning Christ was condemned in his flesh in place of our flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that we would stand before God, righteous, clothed in God's righteous, Christ's righteousness. Yes, this is good. This is what we sing about. But when I wake up tomorrow morning, how do I know? How do I know? Verse 4, Jesus died in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk. Rogers Park, it's at that point in verse 4 that assurance moves from truths to belief, to physical actions, to a new walk that cannot be denied. There is now no condemnation for those who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To walk according to the flesh is to live a life untransformed by the love of God. To walk according to the flesh is to be indifferent to the beauty of God's law. But to live according to the Spirit is to respond to the whispers of Holy Spirit in your heart. Reminding you of God's love for you. Freeing you so you can say, why am I clinging to stuff when God loves me? Why am I bitter about that when God loves me? Why am I jealous about him when God loves me? Why do I need that when God loves me? To walk according to the Spirit is to remain steadfast in our pursuit of kindness, generosity, forgiveness, and love towards God and those around us. And it's in our walking according to the Spirit that we are assured of God's love. It's in our walking. 
or just part, do you walk according to the Spirit? I'm not asking, do you run? I'm not asking, can you do the high jump? I'm not asking, have you fallen? I'm asking, are you walking? There is now no condemnation for those who walk. The proof is in our plodding on towards Christ. The steady, the unspectacular, stumbling progress towards Christ. That's how you know you are not condemned. That you are loved unconditionally by God forever and he is working every second of your life for your good. And the secret to this walk of assurance is to set our minds on the Spirit of God within us. In verse 5 to 8, Paul compares two ways of living to highlight how we walk according to the Spirit. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. As I've already said, living according to the flesh is to live a life untransformed by the love of God. This is the way of our old selves. But there is a, a new way of life. Those who live, walk according to the Spirit are those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And I don't miss this flow that goes through these verses. Paul starts with God's love. Then he says, because, how can we be assured of this love? Verse 4, by our walk in accordance with the Spirit. And how do we walk in accordance with the Spirit? Verse 5, those who live and walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Or we could put this the other way around. What happens when we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? We consequently walk in accordance with the Spirit. And what happens when we walk in accordance with the Spirit? We are assured of God's love. So to find ourselves resting, satisfied, peaceful, bold in our assurance of God's forever, forever, forever love, it starts by setting our minds on the Spirit. The root of experiencing God's love is to set our minds on the Spirit of God within us. Verse 6 says, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And so what does it mean to set our minds on the Spirit? If walking in accordance to the Spirit happens when we respond to the whispers of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, setting our minds on the Spirit is to choose to listen. If walking according to the Spirit happens when we respond to the whispers of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, setting our minds on the Spirit is to choose to listen. But we can't hear with Netflix, with our phones buzzing, social media alerting, money making, elections coming. To set our minds on the Spirit of God, we have to shut out other noises. And choose to orient our lives around moments expectant of God to speak. Orienting our lives around moments expectant of God to speak. When we look at Romans chapter 8, when it gets to saying that, that because you know you, I have declared that you are not condemned anymore, and then when we get, we read down, what we, we see is that, that for the original readers, when they read this and they seen that the proof that you're not condemned is walking in the Spirit, it would have lit them up. 
I'm changed. I know, I know that the Spirit is in me. There's no doubt the Spirit is in me. Because look at my life. Look at the change. There is the assurance. To set our minds in the Spirit, we have to shut out other noises and choose to orient our lives around moments expectance of God to speak, moments in God's Word, moments in prayer, moments in silence, moments dwelling on that which is good and true and beautiful, moments with our minds clear. I think one of the reasons that God speaks through a still, small voice is God doesn't want to be a billboard. He wants to be a friend. He wants you to want to listen. We have to ask ourselves every day, what am I doing to feed my fleshly desires? Does what I'm doing encourage me to listen to the Spirit, or am I smothering the Spirit with flesh? Moments in God's Word, moments in prayer, moments in silence, moments dwelling on that which is good and true and beautiful, moments listening to the Spirit are the moments that will fuel our walk with God, which will fuel our assurance of God's love. Just as we come to the end in verse 10, Paul comes back to to the question of chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? He answers in verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, dying because of sin, the spirit that is our souls, our life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal dying bodies through the spirit who inhabits you. It's interesting that Paul connects spiritual health with physical health. And he he knows that his physical health is only going in one direction with his graying hair, with his weakening knees, his dying body, and he's thinking and wondering if as my body is going, as persecution comes around the corner, as a cancer diagnosis is given, is my soul going the way of my body? And Paul writes, no. He writes, no. Be assured, church, the answer is no. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day by the Spirit of God, one day to be raised again as Christ was raised. The Holy Spirit dwells permanently in every follower of Christ. He is the seal of our salvation. He is a foretaste of our resurrection. To dwell means to live, to to inhabit. If the church is anything, we are inhabited people. We are a God-inhabited people. He is as close to us as we are to ourselves. If only we will stop and we will listen and allow the Spirit to speak to us of God's love and point us to Jesus. Doves may not be descending, but there is a dove resting in our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God that fills us with your spirit, a God who walks with us every day, who sees what we see, who goes where we go. 
And God, you love us. You're committed to us. God, I pray that we will be a people that are attentive to your spirit. May we not grieve your spirit. May we leave space and room for your spirit to speak as a friend that we want to hear from and walk with and do life with. God, may we make changes in our lives. God, may we clear our schedule. May we rearrange our days, God, to be with you, to be in your word, to be with you in prayer, to listen, God, to expect to hear your voice, God. And as we hear your voice, we will have confidence, God, to go and walk as faithful ambassadors for Christ in the world, God. And as we walk, as we go, we will look at our lives and the transformation that has happened, and we will say only by God's Spirit. Only by God's love have I been transformed to live this way, and we will be assured of your love. Do that within our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.